0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. Summer is over. We hope you've all had a really good one. We're back. They're back. It's back. Welcome to the autumn of chaos. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books which is celebrating its 40th anniversary for the next few months with an unimprovable offer. Get a year's subscription and a limited edition LRB tote bag for just £40 by using the URL lrb.me forward slash birthday. So to start tiptoeing through this minefield, we have with us Helen Thompson, Professor of Political Economy, Kenneth Armstrong, Professor of European Law, We don't normally start with declarations of interest, but I think with this one, we need to in real time. So, Kenneth, you are involved in the case that is going to the Scottish courts, trying to get the prorogation of Parliament declared unlawful. I probably even summed it up wrong.
1: No, I mean... That is what you're trying to do. The action that has been brought on behalf of more than 70 MPs and and Lords is trying to establish that the prorogation of of Parliament during this period of time, the lead-up to exit day, is both unconstitutional and unlawful. And there's a difference? Well, the unconstitutional is is looking at the large constitutional landscape in the UK, the, the role of Parliament, the role of the executive And the relationship between the two and then also more specific legal principles in terms of the frustration of Acts of Parliament and in in this case frustration of the power that MPs gave themselves under the European Union Withdrawal Act to approve a withdrawal agreement if, if one came down the line.
0: So it might be relevant to what we're going to go on and talk about we're going to focus on the politics in due course but the case that it's unconstitutional that is because it breaches conventions and shared understandings, or the word that people often use, norms. And the case that it's illegal is because it goes against specific pieces of legislation. Is that right?
1: On the constitutional side, it's not about convention. What we're looking at is the power of the executive, and and in particular the prime minister, to advise the Queen to prorogue. And therefore what we're looking at is in fact quite a classic role for the courts, which is to determine the legal limits on the powers of the executive and those powers are limited by statute they're limited by constitutional principles and principles of law and that is what the petitioners in, in the court of session are asking the scottish courts to determine that is the legal limits on the power of the executive and that is that's a classic function of the courts
0: so as always it's wednesday morning on this wednesday morning in about looking at the clock 40 minutes you're going to hear the first judgment in relation to this case right?
1: So as we're recording this Lord Doherty who sits in the outhouse of the court of session will be giving his opinion on on the case as it was presented uh, yesterday. Thereafter there's a possibility of an appeal still within the court of session to the inner house and th- thereafter we will see what happen because of course there is litigation going on on Thursday um, Gina Miller has her case in the the divisional court in England and there is also another case going on in the Northern Irish courts which um, deals in particular with the implications of the Good Friday Agreement.
0: And that isn't the only thing that's going on so (laughs) we've got to somehow marry these things up. If we stick with prorogation just for now before we get on to what happened last night. Helen what do you think is the politics of this? So what was designed to be achieved by proroguing Parliament in this way. So it may or may not turn out to be unconstitutional, and that will have knock-on consequences. And it will also have long-term consequences, because part of the reason, presumably, this fight is being fought is to establish some guidelines for future governments and future situation, not just about this case.
1: I mean, I think there is interesting questions about that wider role of the executive in, in advising the Queen in respect of various issues to do with Parliament. I mean, prorogation is one, setting the date of, of an election might be another. So although this is one case and one very particular case, given the circumstances, it does raise this wider question about what power exactly does Boris Johnson or any other Prime Minister have in advising the Queen to do various things? And what is the role of the courts in ensuring that the executive acts within proper constitutional and legal limits?
0: So given that, there was also a political strategy at work here. I mean, this was not a random act. And again, we'll discuss in a minute whose decision it was, was this Dominic Cummings. What were they trying to achieve? So I the great fear initially of the people who are most horrified by the thought of prorogation is that parliament would be prorogued to prevent parliament from blocking a no-deal brexit over the time when that was happening so prorogation would take us over the 31st of october deadline that's not what's happening in this case so time has been squeezed but it hasn't kind of been annulled there is time as we discovered last night there's plenty of time to do it options potentially have been squeezed in that it looks to me like it has made it somewhat harder, though not impossible, for the no confidence route. And it squeezed the opposition to the government down a route, which is to legislate for an extension, essentially, take control of parliamentary business. And it has provoked outrage. And it has provoked a series of legal challenges. What were they trying to achieve?
2: Well, I mean, we don't know is the honest answer to that is, is we can just like look at the actions and then try and reconstruct what the Reasoning behind them might have been. I mean, I think that the idea that the motive was to squeeze the amount of time on no confidence and forming an alternative government runs into the issue that that didn't really look like it was going anywhere. I mean, that, that all summer. That appeared to run into the problem that there was simply no consensus amongst the opposition parties I mean, about he, who could be who could be prime minister.
0: It does look like this decision was taken a few weeks ago. It wasn't completely clear. I mean, I, I agree. I don't think it would have happened anyway, but it did force the issue. It seems to have forced the issue.
2: Possibly, I, I would say that as far as it's possible to reconstruct other people's reasoning, that it's got it had two motives. The first was to do something that was provocative and to try to provoke those who look like that they are opposed to no deal in all circumstances, but actually underlying position is more like to oppose Brexit, to do something more dramatic in their opposition to Brexit. So that worked? And the second, and maybe this was actually more important, my judgment is is that Boris Johnson would like an orderly withdrawal from from the EU. Though he doesn't actually want no deal. But in order to achieve that, then something has got to give... For the EU and that means something has got to give with the Irish government and I think regardless whether this judgment is plausible or not that the judgment was that parliament has to look like it's defeated it has to look like the executive has the upper hand because unless the executive has the upper hand there is no possibility of the EU27 and more particularly the Irish government moving and if the unless the Irish government believe that there is a genuine risk of no deal then we're stuck in stasis
0: so that didn't work i mean it does at the moment it doesn't look like so provoke outrage yeah. and force people to coalesce around a harder anti-brexit position yes showing that the executive has the upper hand over the legislature no
2: well I think one of the inter- to this point yeah one of the interesting things that's that's come out is that we're back to the consequences of the fixed term parliament act here which I I do think as I said before has been pretty catastrophic in terms of its consequences for dealing with brexit that that what johnson was trying to do in terms of threatening the threat of losing the whip and possibly deselection and even expulsion from the party was to try to do something that would have been possible without the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, which is to turn these substantive matters into votes of um, confidence. Now, if you go back like to the Maastricht Treaty, you know, you had Conservative MPs who'd spent an entire year, you know, in something that could be described as almost as parliamentary siege warfare against Maastricht Bill. But as soon as Major turned it into a, a confidence vote on that issue, I think one of them didn't turn up at the House of Commons and all the rest of them jumped back in into line. So I think you could see, that there is precedent for thinking that you can discipline your MPs by saying that these are the consequences if you oppose us um, at this moment. But I think that when you try to do it without the old conventions and you try to do it when you've got this legal framework now about the fixed-term Parliament Act that governs what the consequences of confidence votes and how they are used, it just it just doesn't work. And he may have thought you could actually make it work if you like, in this more naked way, and it, and it didn't.
1: And particularly when you, you see a kind of an alternative strategy, which is, oh, well, we'll take away the whip, we'll deselect you, we'll use that kind of party discipline as a substitute for the, the kind of the discipline of, well, this will be a confidence matter mm. and therefore the government might might fall. But of course, that's not worked either because those MPs have simply said, well, if that's what you do, that's what you, you do. And in fact, you're just decreasing your own majority at this point we've talked about this
0: before and it's often said that we wouldn't be in this position never mind johnson if may had had the option of turning one of the meaningful votes maybe even the third one into a confidence vote there's an article by catherine Haddon addressing this point saying that may could have done that i mean johnson did it i mean he explicitly said verbally said this is a confidence vote and it didn't work may could have done it there was nothing to stop her doing it you as it were announce it so why couldn't she
2: well, she could have done it in the same way that Johnson did. She just didn't want to, it, to. Is is that she didn't want to? And it, and I think that what Johnson's proved is it just doesn't work in the same way if the consequences don't follow, in the same way, which is what you know they did prior to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act is is that you lose a confidence vote prior to the Fixed-Term Parliament Act, there's going to be a general election. That isn't what happens if you try to reconstruct it and just threaten your MPs anyway. And is
0: it, as always, as we've discovered with these things, because in the past there was the one vote, you didn't get a second bite at it, but now people are aware that there will be another vote as for this week. So there's the the vote which is said to be the confidence vote, but you know you get another bite, which is the vote, will we have an election or not? That's the problem, right? Putting it back to the legislature as to whether or not it dissolves it itself.
1: And that is if there's enough time to have that second vote. And of course, another little bit of the legal picture is that question of whether prorogation kicking in then frustrates the capacity of an alternative government to be formed within the 14 day period and therefore frustrates uh, the function of the fixed term parliament act which is to say you have a 14 day window to regain confidence or, or for somebody else to gain the confidence of the house
0: because that's in a way what I assumed was part of the strategy here was that those 14 days would be squeezed I mean I'm sure there are ways around it but would be squeezed forcing the opposition into this route where it's just a straight confrontation between a piece of legislation that demands something of the government and a government that though it says it will honour the rule of law, and we'll come on to what that means in a minute, can't act on that basis, therefore forcing a general election because the only alternative, which is to create an alternative government, is no longer available. And that's what they were trying to achieve, that they were trying to get a straightforward confrontation or choice between the legislature demanding one thing, the executive saying it can't do it, and there not being an alternative government available.
2: I see that but I still think you can't leave out the EU side of it and I think that that is a that is a problem in lots of the ways in which the whole issue over the last few weeks has been you know like talked about including the extension issue because what this bill is also raising the question as is 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 it the case then that parliament is going to accept whatever extension the EU offers on whatever terms the EU offers now if the answer to that is something that could substantively be portrayed as yes. That is actually quite useful also for, for Johnson, because it basically says, look, these people in Parliament are trying to thwart the wishes of the majority of the British electorate who voted at least, expressed in the, in, in the referendum, and they wanted to let the EU tell us absolutely everything that now happens. If you're trying to frame a political contest for a general election, that has its uses, shall we say.
0: So in a way, that one has kind of worked. I mean, a lot is going wrong at the moment for the government. And it's really struggling to find a path to the general election it wants to fight. But the wider strategic goal to have a kind of provocation of a response. I mean, I'm sure this is Cummings, right? This is him doing the art of war or Bismarck or whatever it is, trying to provoke a response, which allows you then to frame the fundamental choice on your terms, not their terms. That That may be succeeding even while getting to the election where you're able to offer that choice to the people is failing.
2: I still think, I mean, this is just my my judgment, that the actual end is to try to secure an orderly exit from the European Union and the general election is a means to that rather than the end itself.
0: But the problem there is that people don't believe them. The really strong message that has come out from the rebels the Tory rebels is they do not believe a word Johnson says about being serious about getting a deal and that seems to be sincere they just partly because they don't believe it's possible too many people from John Major and everyone else are saying it's just not going to happen it's unrealistic and partly because they just mistrust him anyway.
1: I mean the key thing there is is this question of of timing of it if there is to be an early general election then clearly it has to be before the European Council meeting in the middle of of October in which point then Johnson has the best of both worlds because he goes into that election saying, I need this as a mandate for for the, the better deal that I think is available in Brussels and that I've been telling you that is available in Brussels. But if that fails, I am equally prepared to take the, the UK out of the EU without a deal on the 31st of October. So, I mean, he has it both ways in, in, in that sense of appealing to those who just want the UK out, even without a deal, but also is holding out this, this promise of, look, give me the mandate, give me the democratic mandate, and I'll go off and negotiate something better. So that's the thing that Jeremy Corbyn is now clear
0: in his own mind and in his public statements he can't allow to happen. So that's the elephant trap, the Boris trap, the bear trap to be caught facing that kind of general election. And Corbyn is saying there are two things that the opposition want. They want a general election and they want a general election after no deal has been ruled out. Now, I'm still not clear. I, I think Johnson's got huge problems at the moment, but I'm still not clear how Corbyn achieves that. You can't. I mean, there, are, there is something really, really... Okay, no, I'm
1: clear. <laughs> but there is something really fundamental. We're going to say something else, don't yeah. <laughs> Is if the election takes place mid-October and Boris Johnson wins a majority and forms a government, he can overturn the legislation that is going through Parliament today, that whole Attempt to tie the hands of the Prime Minister up until and beyond the 31st of October simply falls away because a Johnson government would simply then repeal that bit of legislation. Therefore, the only way in which this works for the the rebel MPs or however you want to describe them is for that general election to take place after the 31st of October. This Parliament cannot legislate to take no deal off the table if a general election is going to be held that will then potentially repeal that legislation.
0: And is the contradiction there that if a general election happens after the 31st of October and this government can't be replaced by an alternative government, this government can hold the line and essentially force a no deal through? I mean, I'm still not totally clear about this, but are these the choices? So you get a general election before the 31st and whoever wins that election can do what they like. So you try and force a general election after the 31st, but you do not have the capacity to replace this government with an alternative government. So then Parliament says, we're legislating against no deal, but we're not replacing the government. And the government says, well, it's up to us what actually happens on the 31st. Is that then the constitutional impasse? Uh,
1: if the opposition parties, are either one of them or, or, or in combination can form an alternative government, then they, they can take uh, Right, but, no assuming, they but assuming, assuming they Johnson can't. Assuming Johnson
0: remains Prime Minister, Parliament will not vote for an election before the 31st, Parliament does vote to make no deal, to outlaw it. What happens? What happens on the 31st? If Johnson is Prime Minister, Parliament says, we want an extension, Johnson refuses, Parliament refuses an election. Queen
2: (laughs) Well you've got to to factor in the possibility of as I say extensions also don't just come out of British politics they have to be secured with the the European Union and because that deadline is not just a matter in our law it's a matter in EU law um, as well and then there's obviously the other possibility that Parliament still has open to it which is to pass legislation to revoke Article 50 and, you know, I think I said way back before we, when we were finishing at the end of last... Well, early in the summer, whenever that went now, what then was, now, or whatever. Whenever that was... we that <laughs> <in>. <laughs> um, That there was a way of looking it, at it, that the politically most useful thing, advantageous thing that Johnson could do was to try to provoke Parliament into trying to pass legislation to revoke Article 15. Because then you really do have a parliament versus the people election in the most starkest terms. And I mean by that, I'm not saying that's the objective case. I'm saying that you, you have as a narrative that in the starkest terms.
0: Because the thing that is really makes it so hard to even think through these things is that we seem to be heading to a situation on the assumption that the opposition cannot organise around an alternative government where the government can't be replaced and the government cannot do the thing that it believes is its fundamental objective as a government. And that this could go on, I don't know for how long, but it could go on past the 31st. And that is just, it's almost impossible conceptually to wrap your head around it. I mean, at what point does the government fall in the absence of a general election, and in the absence of an alternative government? It doesn't. And yet, can Parliament simply keep legislating to tell it it's not allowed to do the thing it wants to do. And then we get to this fundamental question where people say, well, then the government is going against the rule of law because parliament has made a law and the government is refusing. But it's a very particular kind of law.
1: If this bill goes through and there is no general election, then there are clear and binding obligations on the prime minister as to what it is he, he must do. And they are enforceable in the courts. So there is that power there. The question is, whether an election is held in the meantime that would then repeal that law. Now one possibility then is if there is no general election in terms of the Prime Minister putting out a motion for an early election before the House that would require a two-thirds majority. So let's say that doesn't, that majority isn't reached. I think Keir Starmer said this morning that Labour wouldn't vote for for one unless they could be sure that no deal is off the table. So Let's imagine then that we get to the middle of October, we haven't had a general election, we do have a European Council, and nothing comes out of that. And Parliament has passed anti no deal legislation. And Parliament has then passed anti no deal legislation. There would be a compulsion then to seek a further extension. And Johnson says I can't. But there's, what no, happened? Co-
2: there's no compulsion of the EU to give it.
1: Of course, no, no. there isn't. Of course, there isn't. And of course, yeah. I mean, the, the, this legislation cannot demand that. Of course, it can't. And it, it can only request that the. the the prime minister seek an extension. There's certain things that then click in if that extension doesn't doesn't happen. But I mean, you're absolutely right. The prime minister is required to seek that, that extension, and the EU is obliged to everything agree that in.
2: we've learned before about what might be the terms in which the EU would consider an extension. If you think back to what was said last time, would be would be for something substantive to change. So presumably that means that their terms would include would be either a general election or or another referendum. But
0: for the opposition, that's fine, because the election will happen after the 31st. On Kenneth's account, Johnson is constrained, and Johnson has then blown past his do or die deadline. I mean, I want to know what happens if Johnson says, yes, and he has said, he said it yesterday in the Commons, of course, I will obey what the law requires. So a law is passed requiring him to ask for an extension. And he says, I can't do that jail me I can't do it you have to either form an alternative government or have
1: a general election I can't do it then what happens And this is where we get to the great dilemma of the day, which is what should be the thing that is running this? Is it it litigation in courts or is is it the political process? Now, it's fine when you have a political process that can be up and running, that can try and manage this, whether we get votes of confidence, whether we get attempts to form a government of, of national unity and all the rest of it. If that fails, if that politics doesn't work, then of course legal safeguards should click in at that point to say, well, parliament has expressed its will and it's the obligation of the courts to uphold the will of parliament that is after all the the essence of the sovereignty of parliament and
0: the courts do that how they say to the prime minister you have to do it or will x and the prime minister says no i need a general election part of my problem here it goes back to the fixed term parliament act which is a lot of this is framed by that and and it is to use a Technically, it's a pretty crappy piece of legislation. It's kind of bad law, right? It's um, terrible. I well, mean, it, it was made for a particular. It was made to keep
2: Nick, Nick Clegg happy, and we're all living with the constitutional consequences.
1: Although, I mean, I think we need to bear in mind that one of the functions of what the Fixed Town Parliament Act does is to ensure that the executive doesn't simply have a free hand as regards the the operation of parliament. The the parliament itself has chosen to legislate for what the, the parliamentary terms should be. I mean... You might want to extend that out and say that actually Parliament should be doing more of these things. So that's to, in a way what it to, f- to, to to set the rules in in order that we don't live in this world of the murky world of what is the role of of the uh, Crown, what is the role of the sovereign, what's the role of advice, etc. In fact, you simply set down, I think, as I've said before uh, in these podcasts, is you you simply set down some rules on what that should look like. Now that doesn't mean one shouldn't think through what the unintended consequences of those rules might be. And I think that's where we do agree, which is that these rules then have to work out how that plays out
0: in our politics. Because that's and it feels like the problem After we had a system where, it, and it was crazy that the Prime Minister had this extraordinary discretion, including over when to call a general election, this extraordinary power that was used and abused and manipulated. And this legislation tries to curtail that, but doesn't really curtail anything else and it leaves the system more or less intact, having just pulled out one little rung of it. It wasn't systematic, it wasn't thought through. It's left us with the old system, but with one crucial thing that made that system work for better or for worse, often for worse, removed. It was really bad law.
2: Yeah, I entirely agree. I mean, if you you have a constitutional system that in its relations between the executive parliament and the electorate depends on the notion that the executive has to have the confidence of the House of Commons and then you change the rules around that without rethinking the whole constitution, you have a problem. And that is essentially what was done with the Fixed-Term Parliament Act. And it was done not for any purpose, really, of checking executives' power. It wasn't in David Cameron and um, Nick Clegg's interest to have the power of the executive checked by Parliament, because Nick Clegg feared that the Conservatives would cut and run during the, the during the coalition. But I think a
1: really interesting theme that I think is emerging from that discussion and what we've been talking earlier is this: is this question about tying hands. Everybody seems to be trying to tie somebody's hands, whether it, whether it's Parliament trying to tie the hands of the executive or the executive trying to tie the hands of Parliament in, in some way. And the question is: are we ending up in a situation where everybody's hands are getting are getting tied? But actually, are we? missing on how do you create the politics in which you can actually decide things you can actually do things rather than this game of each side trying to constrain the other in this to try and force decisions is itself part of the problem i think
0: talking politics is brought to you in partnership with the london review of books So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch.
2: $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promo for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com.
0: Do you think the people who drafted the Fixed-Term Parliament Act legislation should have thought through the kind of scenario we're in now? I mean, how outlandish do you think it is relative to where they were in 2010? I mean, it's easy with hindsight to say, look, it's within a decade and that legislation has produced this mess. But a lot of things had to happen to get here. Is it unfair to say of them that they should have thought through the possibility of a minority government unable to act on its primary objective as a government facing an opposition that lacks the capacity under the terms of this legislation to create an alternative government. Is that a really outlandish scenario? Are we in a very unusual no, place? I don't
2: think so. And, it, it, and those bits are unusual. But if if you think back to the issue that's created by treaties, and this isn't just a matter of the EU, because it could be trade treaties for that matter as well. But the, the EU ones have proved... Difficult to get through Parliament without confidence votes. Right way back to the European Communities Act in, in 1972, it was true of the Maastricht Treaty. As we've talked about before, this situation where executives negotiate treaties you know, with each other and then domestic parliaments are supposed essentially to ratify what executives do is cause problems in quite a number of countries' politics, not only ours. The ways in which that problem had been dealt with. In Britain at least since 1972 had been to use confidence votes when things got difficult unless that government thought there weren't any treaties including EU treaties which remember at the time that David Cameron and Nick Clegg were committed to trying to have a new EU treaty so that they could as David Cameron thought about it claim some sovereignty back again they absolutely should have thought about that problem because they wanted to do something which went to the core which is have a new EU treaty in order to get some reforms that they thought were were necessary that went to the core of the problem that we're now facing.
1: But isn't there just a more basic problem, which is what happens in any decision-making structure where you don't have a majority for something, but there's not a majority for anything else either, and therefore you simply get stuck in the middle that there's no majorities? Can be formed as to what to do, and therefore you simply end up in an impasse. In which case, you then have to look to some external agent to make that decision. And that seems to me where we but, are. But well, what you're
2: supposed to look to is the electorate. I mean, that's a, You that, get a new parliament. You get a new parliament. Yeah, I mean.
0: <laughs> and the thing that's being blocked is the capacity yeah, to get I'm, a new parliament. And then, yeah, I yeah, mean, in yeah. that parliament may reach yeah. its own impasse, and everyone understands, like, it yeah. could easily be another hung parliament. But at least they would have fought that election. I mean, I want to come on to this. They would have fought that election on a series of promises or offers to the electorate about the resolution of this question which is not really the case i mean that's the other problem here they did fight the 2017 election on a series of manifestos that they are not at all comfortable (laughs) enacting i'm now getting i'm getting a bit anxious now um so i want to ask two political questions about this and then maybe we'll come back at the end to that broader question about the law so one is, at some point, there will be a general election before or after the 31st. It's it's massively odds-on on the betting markets it'll happen this year. Not certain, but likely. This election is being framed by the government as a straightforward choice about Brexit. Now, Theresa May tried to do that in 2017. The difference, I think, in that case is she didn't offer anything substantial. She just said this is a Brexit election. And if you want it to be easier for me to negotiate, you give me a big majority. But she didn't say anything more than that. Whereas in this case, it will be a much, much clearer choice. Essentially, it'll probably be if you want to leave at all, you have to vote conservative or whatever the alliances between the Conservatives and the Brexit party. What we learned in 2017 is that general elections don't tend to work like that. At least that one didn't. It was very quickly overwhelmed by domestic issues and other things. The Labour Party are clearly sort of hoping in this case that that will be true too. Another difference this time is that Johnson will be fighting it on a very populist, anti-austerity domestic package. He's going to be throwing money around, which Theresa May wasn't. So there's this really complicated thing going on here. I mean, I think Corbyn's got a bit of a dilemma. What does he want to fight this election on? He, he might actually be better off fighting it as a Brexit election, and hoping that he can coalesce opposition to this very unpopular government around that question. But I think secretly he wants to make it a domestic election. It'll be a uniquely complex scenario, but there are some tough choices on both sides. Do you think Corbyn should hope for this to be or not to be a Brexit election?
2: I think that you know what you've just said is is all true, and it's complicated, though, by the fact that he's got to compete for votes with the Liberal Democrats on the Brexit side of of things. The other thing that we should bear in mind is is that the reason why for Theresa May it went wrong last time in the respect that you're talking about because obviously there were any other numbers of ways it went which didn't throw enough money went went wrong was that she framed as a Brexit election and then she introduced social care into it so actually it was her own doing that on a really difficult thought question she threw into the election and destroyed in some sense her own narrative about it being about um, brexit so i wouldn't necessarily draw the conclusion that you can't as the government frame it the way that you want to from the 2017 case though clearly if you go back to 19 february 1974 heath tried to frame it one way and that certainly didn't certainly didn't work
0: again that was a very general question who who rules britain who governs britain Whereas this is a more specific question. Do you want to honour the result of the referendum or not? It's about a thing and not a principle. I mean, a, a, an abstract principle. I mean,
2: I mean, I think clearly that Corbyn's not in a good position if he's got to fight on the defensive terms of, do you want to honour the result of the, the referendum? And Labour has to commit itself to the answer, no, we don't. I think that's, that's pretty problematic for the Labour Party.
0: And the other advantage that he had in 2017 is that under first-past-the-post, people seem to recognise that if you wanted to oppose the Conservative Party, either for domestic reasons or for Brexit reasons, you kind of had to swallow whatever it is you need to swallow and vote Labour. It's not so obvious that that's going to work this time. No, it might, it might.
2: The Liberal Democrats are clearly in a pretty different position. Though we should remember, I think, that the Liberal Democrats had had some good months in late 2016, early 2017, around the Richmond by-election. So that sort of fall away of the Liberal Democrats actually came quite late in proceedings. Indeed, if you looked at some of the opinion polling in the beginning of that campaign, they were polling not quite the Labour's level, but not that far below, and then it crashed for them. But I can't see it crashing for them in quite the same way this time.
1: I think the, the opposition parties have a real dilemma on their hands as to whether they could, if at all agree a common Brexit platform. You know, they will all have their own different domestic agenda platforms and what they want to do, but could they actually coalesce around a kind of common Brexit manifesto, if you like, of what they would all, if you vote for any of the opposition parties, this is what we would all do. Clearly, the Liberal Democrats' big sell is that they are are a a revoke party. Labour aren't going to go down that. So if the common position then is that they will hold hold a referendum, well, that's fine on the Remain side of things, but what's the common position on what leave looks like in that referendum? I think it would really be very difficult at this point for the opposition parties to work out what their leave offer would be in a referendum if that's what they were going to promise in a a general election.
0: Don't Labour also need to push hard against the idea that whichever opposition party you vote for, you'll get X. I mean, the reason it worked in 2017 is they basically were saying to people, don't vote for any of the others because it's a wasted vote. If you really care about providing an alternative government to this government you have to vote for us.
1: No, I don't actually because I think it does do the thing that you were highlighting which is that it does allow Labour to actually say look we're bracketing off the Brexit back because we've all got the common platform and there's where it is it allows them to actually speak to the electorate about what they are, their social policy is their economic policies more generally to say that's what we're fighting the election on because this other stuff is something that all the opposition parties have agreed we will do and that's where we're at with this. It'll be really interesting to see if that works. Mm-hmm. I'm not, I don't know. Well, I think it's highly unlikely, but it, it seems to me a, a kind of logical strategy. I mean, there's no point having this discussion about a, a unity government that could be formed, blah, 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 unless you know what that unity gov- government's common platform was. So it also follows that if they're going to go into an, an election saying we are all united against this terrible government and this Brexit strategy, well, they also then have to be united in what, what their Brexit strategy is. So the other difference in
0: 2017 is that May's government, though, in hindsight, people now think it was a bit of a shambles. It didn't look like a shambles back then when she was fighting. She was very popular. The government looked pretty united. It was a pretty conventionally well-run operation until it fell apart. That's not true of this one, right? This this is, Corbyn is historically massively unpopular, but Johnson is not doing particularly well. He hasn't been prime minister for long and already it, it looks like the wheels are coming off. And then there's we, we often discuss, do the old rules still hold? So here's another old rule that used to be just a kind of mantra of British politics, which is when the special advisor becomes the story, the special advisor has to go. So when Alistair Campbell became the story around the time of the David Kelly affair and, and its aftermath, he had to go. When Charlie Whelan and Damian McBride became the story with Gordon Brown, they had to go. When Fiona Hill and Nick Timothy became the story. You know, there is a point at yeah. which when everyone is focusing on these people and wondering, are they running the show? Who are they accountable to? The newspapers are full of gossipy stories about them and their erratic, brutal, tyrannical behaviour. Now, Dominic Cummings, I mean, he was the story from day one. I mean, this is a really unusual government. It's almost as though another way in which Johnson's saying the old rules don't apply. I don't care. I'm going to put this kid in charge of the chemistry set and just let him (laughs) mix stuff up in the test tube. But even in the last 24 hours, the stories about Cummings, whether they're true or not, are really damaging. But it doesn't look like he's going to go. I mean, he might go, but...
2: Well, he's only actually employed... I think he only has a contract till the 31st of October. That was the story,
1: and I think that's kind of interesting if that is true because I do think there is a very short-term strategy to this. This is about what do we do in the weeks ahead, you know, from Johnson's elections, Prime Minister. What do we need to do between now and the thirty-first of October? What's that strategy? How do we engineer an election? What happens thereafter once a thumping majority is delivered for for Boris Johnson? If that's what the strategy is, that's another matter. But I think this is. I think it does have a kind of clear short-term time frame.
0: And yet it's so hard to bracket these things off. So one of the things I think was, there are many risky things about putting Cummings in the position that he's in. He's clearly very good at some things and he he has consistently been very successful at running referendum campaigns, which are about finding ways to divide the entire electorate against their traditional party allegiances and to form enough people to get you over the line on that day. General elections are not like that. And parliamentary politics is not like that. And manifestos are not like that. You didn't have to produce a manifesto for the Brexit referendum, but they will have to produce a manifesto for this. My feeling is if they let Cummings loose on a general election, as letting him loose on parliamentary politics, they are really, really playing a dangerous game. There's no evidence that he knows how to do that. Or that his style of politics suits that. So yeah, you could hire him. Like, Your job is to get us out on the 31st and you're ruthless and you'll do what it takes and you're also imaginative and you're strategic. But you can't bracket it off. And already Cummings is spilling over into election politics.
2: I mean, clearly he has you know antagonised a not inconsiderable number of Conservative MPs from what we read. And you're absolutely right that parliamentary politics and referendum politics are not like each other. And that is one of the reasons why we are you know like where we are is, is that the referendum allowed a, a coalition of Leave voters to manifest itself that wouldn't have been able to manifest itself in parliamentary politics. I think even if you take the Conservative Party moving in a more Eurosceptic direction, it still would have been incredibly difficult for that coalition to manifest itself. And that is one of the reasons why it is proven thus far possible for Parliament, the majority in Parliament anyway, to um, ensure that Britain has not left the European Union yet. And how you reconcile having had referendum politics and going back to parliamentary politics is a really, really difficult question. And it goes way beyond Dominic Cummings, that's what I was trying to say.
0: A lot's going to happen over the rest of this week. We're going to be coming back to talk about this again before next Wednesday. Kenneth, there will be decisions being made in the courts as we go through this. And there is, in the background, this kind of rumbling narrative two claims are being made. One is that we've seen a coup. I mean, I think people have heard me talk about this. I don't think that's really helpful language. But the other is that the principle of the rule of law is at stake here, that Parliament is passing laws. And the executive potentially is refusing to do what those laws demand of it. And we've talked a bit about how the executive may not feel it has much choice. Is this though, this is the thing I'm not sure about, I'm pretty sure it's not a coup yet is the rule of law at stake here when parliament for a particular purpose passes a piece of legislation to try and require of the executive something that the executive does not want to do in order to forestall either a general election or being forced to come up with a unity government under jeremy corbyn it's political from top to bottom from head to foot side to side can it still be said that nonetheless on a point of principle if that has been passed by parliament for whatever reason that is the thing that we call the rule of law
1: I I think absolutely that has to be the case in in our system in which the courts uphold the sovereignty of Parliament by giving effect to the, the will of Parliament as expressed in statutes, and if that includes laying down obligations, duties, commitments on the executive and the prime minister, then that's what must happen. But I think one of the things that we've we've come back to time and time again in these discussions is this relationship between, between law and politics, particularly the relationship between courts and other forms of, of political structure and, and where political deliberation should perform its function and what function courts should perform. I think the point you're making about whether this is a coup or not, it's, it's much, much more about the irresolution of our politics, these kind of impasses, the failures, the the, the tying hands in ways that make, make actual politics difficult to come to, to decisions. And in a way... The courts are being brought into the, these things, but I think there is a legitimate role for for courts here. I mean, I know Jonathan Sumption has been interviewed extensively on this and saying actually these aren't really legal questions; these are these are questions of politics, best best left to the political arena. To which the obvious answer to that is, but it is the political arena that is failing. And if ordinary politics was working, then it would be producing results, and these things wouldn't be going to the courts in the first place. The role of the courts will always be residual in in this sense but their role is clear in a system that isn't just a representative democracy but also a a constitutional monarchy that the constitutional part of that really matters and that the courts are there to perform their constitutional function which is to control the executive and uphold the will of Parliament.
2: I think that if uh, the executive ignores a law that Parliament's passed then you have to say that that is a matter of the, the rule of law because laws are supposed to be obeyed, including by the executive. I think you can still, though, turn around and say that actually Parliament or the majority in Parliament that has got to the position where it is trying to instruct the executive about how to conduct negotiations with the EU and that has the previous Parliament legislated for a referendum and that almost all the MPs, or most of the MPs anyway in this Parliament, stood for in the last general election on the principle of upholding the referendum result and then that Parliament has declined three times to leave the European Union in an orderly way, that you can still think it's constitutionally feckless for the majority in Parliament to be passing laws to instruct the executive about what to do. And it seems to me you can hold both of those positions, that the rule of law is at stake and that, doing this by the majority in parliament would be a constitutionally feckless thing to do
0: and you know i'm not the person who's saying that this isn't an issue of the rule of law but this is in some ways a failed parliament i mean i think this parliament has failed in many respects and it's tying itself up in knots which is politics politics is about tying up yourself up in knots and then trying to undo them But because the obvious solution would be not for this parliament to keep legislating, but to try and get a new parliament, for this parliament to keep legislating does at least potentially in the long term, pose some risk to the reputation of this principle of the rule of law, I think. I mean, I think it's dangerous without, I think you can hold those two thoughts in your head too, that there are some really important principles at stake. And upholding those principles in the name of a failed parliament, politically might be quite dangerous.
2: I think it runs the danger of looking that the law is being used for a particular political purpose and that those who are on the losing side of, of that are not the people who have recourse to law in the same way. I think that is a genuine political risk going forward.
1: I mean, I think there are two issues here. One is about whether Parliament and MPs uh, use the parliamentary process to enact laws that uh, produce something which you'd describe as constitutionally feckless. That is one question, of course. it's a, It's always a question about whether... In any constitutional system, legislative acts should always be immune from review or should they be held to higher constitutional standards. That's why you have written constitutions and fundamental rights guarantees around the the world. The other way of looking at it, though, is whether it is possible and right for the executive to be able to do things which are constitutionally feckless or, as we would argue, aren't just constitutionally feckless, but actually just are, are downright unconstitutional.
0: There's a really interesting article in the current issue of the LRB by Stephen Sedley about Jonathan's Assumption, about some of the things that Kenneth was just talking about, the fundamental principles of the rule of law and the relationship between law and politics. That is at lrb.co.uk. Kenneth has just left and on his way to the station, he has sent us a text which says, Judge, refused our application, a matter of politics, not law apparently, appeal likely. We'll tweet the link to that judgment too. We've just launched on YouTube the first of a series of films that we're planning to do with the people at TIFO Football who make the excellent short animated films about football politics and finance and power. This one is about the EU's Brexit strategy. We will tweet the link to that. There will be more to come. And we're doing an extra episode this week because Adam Tooze is in town and we're going to be looking at not just at Brexit but at the global economy from a non-UK-based perspective. That will be available this weekend. There's a lot going on. We'll be back next week. Do join us for all that. My name is David Runciman, and we've been talking politics. How long have we we done?
2: We've done 43.
0: This is the point where we look at our phones.
2: Yeah.
0: See if anything's happened. The latest news is listen to the latest Brexit cast. Theirs is called Oh What a Night. And ours is called Is It Legal? That's a good. Sorry, that sounds even worse. Doesn't <laughs> <it>? <laughs> which one comes? Which one becomes the other? The sequel? Yeah, which, which the prequel? You? <laughs> <laughs> when you sober up? The <laughs>